Father, we do come before you this morning, and Lord, thank you for making it well with our soul through salvation in Jesus Christ, for each and everyone who knows him. I just thank you, Lord, that the gospel was free, and that there are no works that we had to do in order to obtain our salvation. And we praise you for the work that Christ has done, the finished work. He paid it all. And Lord, I do pray this morning as we look to the word of God that you would just really help us to grasp the significance of the practical truths that you have laid down for us in your word. I pray, Lord, that it will equip us to live a life of faith and godliness. I pray, God, that you will bless our time together in a special way through the word and through fellowship. I pray for our missionaries that you might encourage them today. And I thank you for each one of them, Lord, who who is so faithful to you. And Lord, I pray for those who are among us today who have just the burdens of life weighing down upon them. That, Lord, they would look unto you as the one who supplies all the strength that they need to bear up under those burdens. That we would cast all our care upon you knowing that you care for us. We wouldn't be anxious <clears throat> for anything. <clears throat> Praise you for each one here. <clears throat> for their growth in Christ, for all that you supply for each and every one. And I pray, God, that the whole body, composed of many different parts, would would work together and function as as an organized whole to the glory of Jesus Christ, each one doing the work that you have called them to do, each one equipped in a unique way with the spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit of God. So I thank you, Father, now for this time and pray that you might bless it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Romans chapter 1, verses, or chapter 1 through 11, we mentioned to you a number of times it's about doctrine. Doctrine is biblical teaching. And then beginning in chapter 12 through the end of the book, primarily chapter 13, 14, and 15, Paul just really talks about practice, putting, putting the doctrine into practice. And that's where it gets more difficult. You could learn all kind of facts. You could have all your doctrine right, but it doesn't mean that you're living right. So living the Christian life is the challenge, and, and it's, it's not easy. Thank you. It's not easy for children to obey their parents in all things. It's not easy for a wife to submit to her husband and reverence her husband. It's not easy for a husband to love his wife with the love of Jesus Christ. It's not easy for any of us to submit to the authorities that are over us. Romans chapter 13, the government authorities. Might be your boss. Might be the authorities in the church. And it's not easy for any one of us to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lordship of Christ in every area of our life. And yet that's what we are called to do, and God supplies the grace for us to do all of these things as we would submit to him. So last Sunday I spoke about salvation legalists. Salvation legalists who believe that you have to do things in order to obtain salvation. And I also spoke about sanctification legalists. They are Christians who add extra-biblical requirements derived from traditions or teachings of men in order to live what they believe would be a life most pleasing to God. And they usually don't stop there. They often try to impose their convictions on other Christians. For example, they may hold the view that Christians should not watch television. You've probably heard that. I don't know. Because Psalm 101.3 says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Now granted, there's a lot of wickedness on television and on the internet. 
But that doesn't mean you have to throw out your television or cancel your internet service in order to be spiritual. You have to be discerning in what you watch to not set any evil thing before your eyes. You have to be discerning in where you go. You have to be discerning in all the things that you do. That's what a mature Christians do. Romans 13 concluded with the admonition, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It means follow Christ. Give him your all. And make no allowance or provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So the Bible does not give us a license under the banner of grace or liberty to do whatever it is we want to do. So set no things before your eyes, but you have to control that. If you have a problem viewing pornography on your, on your computer, you have a big sin problem in your life, and you need help. And you can't be trusted on a computer. You can't be trusted renting movies. Now you come to Romans 14, Paul talks about strong and weak Christians, and that's the title of this message. The stronger brother is, is not the one with stricter standards of living, and the weaker brother is not someone who places very few restrictions on his Christian life and, and pushes the boundaries of true Christian liberty. The stronger one is the, the Christian who understands what true liberty, Christian liberty, allows. They are able to exercise their Christian freedom without an alarm bell in their conscience sounding. The weaker Christian is the one whose conscience concerning certain things has not matured to the point of being able to walk by grace and make mature decisions in their life. He is weak in faith. And actually the Bible talks here in Romans 14, weak in the faith. And with the definite article there, it's referring to the body of Christian teaching, the body of doctrine, beginning with the, the doctrine of salvation. So Romans chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15 and verse 13, that's 26 verses in all, deals with the matter of stronger and weaker brothers. It's about diet days and drink, wine. Diet, days, and drink. We're just going to talk about the diet part of it today. And uh, I'll give you some examples from my own life. I won't pick on your diet too much, all right? So let's begin. Romans chapter 14. Just look at these first couple of verses. Receive the one who is weak in faith, in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eat despises him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be, be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And then he goes on and begins to talk in verse 5 about days. And then he goes down a little bit further and it talks about diet or drink. So the question then is when Paul brings up the strong and the weak, who, who are the strong? And who are the weak here in the context of Romans 14? Paul never says that the weak are Jewish believers in the church and the Gentiles are the strong ones, or vice versa. He really doesn't put his finger exactly on it as he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There's a difference between these chapters. So I put in your notes, we cannot be absolutely dogmatic. David Allen Black, he's a biblical scholar. I think I have one of his Greek works. He says... Not even this passage, despite its length, and remember it goes all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, has sufficient detail to give a completely satisfactory explanation of the identity of the weak and the strong groups. The events themselves that led Paul to address the conflict between the weak and the strong lie so deeply concealed 
that it is most difficult, if not impossible, to know exactly who they were. So even if we can't be exactly, you know, dogmatic like I like to be sometimes, we can draw a lot of principles out of this and a lot of truth out of this because it's a matter of, of uh, harmony in the church and people sowing discord in the church. And it has a lot of applications to other issues besides diet. Now, my opinion and the opinion of many others is that the weak may have been Jewish converts to Christianity who felt that they must adopt a lifestyle that was, was very loyal to a ritualistic observance of the Mosaic law. And they even went beyond that and added other things to that. Colossians 2.16 says this, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of a new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which were a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So all that you read in the Old Testament, all those regulations, all those rules, some of which are very confusing, and you wonder why in the world was this ever put into place. It was only a shadow of things to come. The body is of Christ. So what do we gather from this verse in Colossians? Let no man judge you in meat, drink, or holy days. Nothing you put in your mouth, nothing you put in your mouth has any moral or spiritual significance attached to it. This was a problem for Jews like Peter, you remember, who grew up under the law? And he came to Christ under, uh, under the new covenant of grace and liberty. And, and it took Peter time to come to terms with that. Look for a moment with me at Acts chapter 10. Verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. And the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming to him and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid. And he said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your, your prayers and your alms have come up from, for a memorial before God. Sent to Joppa. Send for Simon, whose name is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among them who waited on him continuously. So when he explained all these things to him, he sent to Joppa for Peter, right? The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter was up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And then he became very hungry and he wanted to eat. And, and while he was made ready, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven open in an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. Now, there's a contradiction for you, right? <laughs> not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call uncommon. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. And now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And we're going, to, we're going to stop reading there. This occurred around 38 AD, roughly. 38 to 40 AD. So roughly five, six years after the, the, the death of Christ. It's a monumental chapter because God is opening the door of, of the church to Gentile believers. And if you notice from the reading, Cornelius was a religious man. He was devout. He offered prayers. He gave alms. He was a religious man, but he was a lost man. There are plenty of people in the world who are very religious, but they're, they're all equally lost if they don't know Christ as their Savior. So as a God-fearer, 
he would have been regarded by the Jews as a proselyte of the gate, but not a full convert to Judaism because he had not yet been circumcised. A full convert to Judaism requires circumcision. So we read about this vision here. And I just want you to think how startling this must have been to Peter. He said he saw heaven open. All right, so this is God's doing. And this vessel comes down descending upon him. And it was like a great sheet knit at the four corners. It comes all the way down in front of him to the earth. And on that sheet were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and fowls of the air. And it's interesting, because in Romans chapter 1, in verse 23, when it talks about this people who knew God, they saw the creation, they knew there was a God, and they rejected that revelation of God, and they began to worship the what? The creature, the creation, rather than the creator. And it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 23, notice this, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man to birds, to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Sound familiar? Yeah. It's just the vision that Peter saw. So Peter's vision pictured the entire animal world which would have included clean and unclean things. And those clean and unclean things are given in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now listen, they were not given for health benefits. Sometimes you read and people, they wax eloquent on, on the optimum diet, you know, they go into the Old Testament. They were not given for health benefits. They may have had some benefit in that way attached. They were given, for this reason, they were given to teach the Israelites that they were to be separate from the other nations of the world. They were different. They were a peculiar people called of God, and even their diet was to serve as an object lesson for that. That's the purpose of those regulations. And you can tell from Leviticus chapter 11 where those regulations are at the end, verse 45, what does God say? Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. It says this, For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And then what does it say? You shall be what? Holy, for I am holy. Who repeats that? Peter in the New Testament. So it's all about making them a holy or a separate people from all the nations of the world and the diet regulations and the clothing regulations and all of that stuff that went along with it was an object lesson for them to realize that they were different and they were to live differently than everybody else. So then the command came to Peter, rise up and eat all these unclean things. And he refused. He says, I've never eaten anything like that in my life. Anything common or unclean. Not so, Lord. So he's telling God that this is off limits to him. So God comes and tells him a second time to eat. Happens three times. These were unclean to him in a ceremonial sense. According to Levitical law, he had to abstain from all of that. It's interesting. It says in verse 17, then, Peter was confused about this whole thing. He doubted in himself. Why, you know, why would God do this? He'd say, rise up and eat. And... So he's confused, it says in verse 17, what, what, what this vision should mean. And then behold, the men that were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Peter was confused about this vision because it wasn't really about food at all. That was part but the point that God was making to Peter was that he was to take the gospel to the unclean Gentiles, to an unclean man deemed unclean by Judaism. And the sheet concerning the, with the clean and unclean animals repre represented all of humanity, all of humanity. 
He says in verse 28, he said unto him, You know how it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or even come into another nation. But God hath showed me, this is when he finally gets it, Acts 10, 28, God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now listen, all of us are sinners by nature, by birth, and by choice. And you know what that means? We were all unequally clean in the sight of God. We all need the cleansing of the gospel. What another person looks like, what they may eat, where they live, all of those things do not matter because all of those things will perish. They're temporal, but the soul is eternal. Now, concerning foods, Jesus is the ultimate authority. And Jesus made it very clear that men cannot be defiled by what they put into their body. They're defiled by what comes out of their heart from their sin nature. Mark 7, 14. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to him, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, these are the things that defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it it does not enter into his heart but into his stomach and it's eliminated? And then it adds this, and the majority of the Greek texts, early texts, have this statement in it, thus purifying all foods or translation, thus he declared all foods clean all foods clean and that's why paul says in first corinthians six twelve, all things are lawful for me but not all things are expedient nor necessary all things are lawful but i will not be brought under the power of any listen it's easy to be brought under the power of things you know for it's just very simple you could be brought under the power of alcohol you could be brought under the power of drugs You could be brought under the power of a diet and those things can begin to control your life. So we need to be careful. It says in verse 13, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God will destroy both it and them. That's the bottom line. It's all temporary. Now your your diet may get you a few pounds lighter, but you're still going to go. You may go a few pounds lighter, but you are going to go. So identifying the strong and weak really in this chapter is not the main issue. It really isn't. The main issue is to act in a godly, mature way when Christians have differences on matters, recognizing that there are stronger and weaker Christians. Some are babes in Christ. Some have been Christians for many, many years. So we want to look at the text. Paul pictures the weak as holding to three things, as I mentioned them already, that caused them to clash with the strong. But first, look at Romans 14, verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith. He doesn't have a fully informed conscience. He's weak in his understanding of Christian truths and application of those truths. He that is weak in the faith, receive ye, and it's a present tense, keep receiving him, but not to doubtful disputations. Now, it's interesting that that word disputations comes over into English by our word dialoguing. So what this weak Christian was doing, in essence, was he didn't really know He was really leaning hard in one direction and he came to this conclusion that, you know, he can't eat certain things, but he's actually dialoguing in his own mind about this. And I've met a lot of people like that. They're dogmatic, but they really really aren't certain themselves what's going on. So he was reasoning or talking to himself about some of the things that were new to him. 
Now, it would be easy for the stronger Christian to jump on him and tell him just the way it is, right? Now, you're going to inform his conscience in a hurry. New King James says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. And the net says, And do not have disputes over differing opinions. So really, in, in one sense, this is a plea for unity. It's a plea for unity in the church. For one believes that he made all things, another who is weak eats only herbs. So first of all, remember I said it's about diets, days, and drink. First of all, they were vegetarians. They were only eating vegetables. The Greek word for herbs here comes from a root word meaning to dig, to dig. The eating of vegetables here had nothing to do with the health benefit. The Bible does not advocate for one particular kind of diet at all. Douglas Moo says, while abstinence from meat was not part of the Torah, because obviously they ate all kind of meat in the Old Testament. Some, some animals were off, off, off uh, you know, the list, but I mean, they ate lamb, they ate beef, they ate all these things. So while it was not part of the Torah, many Jews would abstain if they could not get kosher meat. Kosher meat. Another idea points to a more extreme form of asceticism that was found in certain Jewish sects at that time. And they would go even beyond the Mosaic law because the Mosaic law didn't forbid drink. And when you see the word drink there, it's talking about wine. And the Mosaic law did not forbid wine forbid drunkenness but they would even you know take almost the vow of a nazarene which they couldn't eat grapes or wine second they held some days in special veneration we'll get to that well the strong considered all days alike that's verse five one man esteems one day and above another another esteems every day alike let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind and it's interesting because in the seventh day adventist sect what are they they're vegetarians. And what, what day do they worship on? Sabbath. And they have all kinds of other rules and regulations that they, they try to enforce upon people in, in order for them to be you know, spiritual. Third, they may have abstained from drinking wine. Verse 21. I'm not going to get into that. Now, it's interesting. Diet, days, and drink. We still argue over those things today. Right? but for different reasons. Should I, could I eat this, that, or the other thing? Uh, what, should I, could, can I worship on Christmas or is Christmas from a, a pagan source and I shouldn't have anything to do with that? We, we argue about diets, days, and drink. Should I drink, could I not drink, so forth and so on. What can I drink, how much? It, it's very American to argue over diets. I think we're the most diet-conscious people in the world. I mean, really. So the strong were those strong in the faith. They had an informed conscience, and they knew that they had the liberty to eat all things. And again, as I said last week, it is reasonable to have expectation and standards in the Christian life. But this is concerning morally neutral areas. And the weak were going beyond what God requires. Now, in, in the situation in 1 Corinthians 8, pagans come out of this paganism. The, 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 the wine and the meat that was sold in the marketplace was, was sacrificed to gods, which Paul says are demons. And the belief was that when these people would eat the meat, some of the power of the gods would come into them. And imagine coming out of that as a Christian. You want nothing to do with that. And yet they were free to do it. But not if they were going to offend somebody else by what they were doing. It's, it's, I could remember as a, you know, getting saved as a Roman Catholic. And again, I've told the story before. You know, one of the big fundraisers for the Catholic Church was in the summertime, they would have what they called bazaars, B-A-Z-A-A-R-S. And they were really like outdoor picnics, and, and they, were, they would have gambling wheels there and penny pitches for money and, you know, spin the wheels. And, and they had a lot kind of food, and they had uh, just, you know, lots of drink. 
lots and lots of beer. Well, I didn't drink the beer or anything, but I used to go to those things, and, and uh, I, used to, I used to love the grated potato pancakes. They were the best. They would fine-grade these potatoes, and then, of course, it wasn't healthy for you because they would, they would just soak them in this oil, and, and they would deep-fry them, and then when they were piping hot, they would put sugar over the top. Doesn't that sound good? It was good. It melted in your mouth. It was like my favorite thing. Well, after I got out of the Catholic Church, I wouldn't, I wanted those things. I wanted some potato pancakes, but I wouldn't go buy them because I felt I was supporting the Catholic Church. So I, but I remember one time, you know, I was struggling with that. My mom came home with one. She came with this and she goes, she knew my feelings and she goes, do you want some of these potato pancakes? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and I ate every one of them. And I was about to tell her, could you go back and get me more? She really didn't think I was going to take them, you know. Now, maybe if I had a weak conscience as a Christian, I wouldn't touch that thing. But see, diet's important to me because I'll share my testimony someday before I leave, I promise. <laughs> but I, I was led into New Age stuff, Eastern mysticism, all of that stuff. And diet was a big part of it. So I know we have some vegetarians here and vegans, and I was a vegan long before any of you. I was a vegan for several years back in the early 70s. I came out to California, became friends with a guy who owned a natural food store in Pacific Beach. Actually, two were there. Both are gone. And uh, he was into, into Eastern religion. And he was a vegetarian, and he started telling me about, you know, vegetarianism and, and about, uh, it wasn't for health reasons, it, part of it, but it was mostly about you know, the, the Eastern philosophy and the karmic debt. You know, you kill an animal and all that stuff and you get car, bad karma. And, and so it was for spiritual reasons to be a vegetarian. So I, it was really easy out there. There's two health food stores within a half a block. I was a vegetarian. Guess what? I went back to Pennsylvania. I was the only vegetarian in the world back there. <laughs> there was no vegetarian stuff in stores. There was no internet. There was nothing. Just me. I was on an island. I tried to keep that up. It was hard. It was really hard. For one thing, it just put me in a socially awkward people. Oh my! Listen, this was an Italian, Polish, Yugoslavian community. Guess what they ate? Meat. Well, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't do anything. I lost friends. I couldn't even go out and have a good pizza. I was that strict because I believe I was getting some bad spiritual vibes from this stuff. And I also was getting physically weak. I lost a lot of weight, and everybody told me, you're wasting away. Because I couldn't even get good vegetarian food. There just wasn't nothing. I'd come home for Sunday dinner, and my mom would have a great roast beef or roasted chicken. And I'd eat potatoes with vegetables, frozen. Not even fresh stuff for the most part. So you say, okay, well, then what's your diet like now? All things in moderation. That's my diet, except for liver and spinach. <laughs> That's in the Bible. <laughs> I put it there. <laughs> my mom, you know, we were regimented. Spaghetti one day, chicken one day, roast beef one day. Fish Fridays, we were Catholic. Can't eat fish. I mean, couldn't eat meat on Fridays. I mean, you don't, you don't want to jeopardize your soul for a beef jerky, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it was. So my mom would give liver one day. I hated liver. I still hate liver. <laughs> and I like spinach on salads, but I hate cooked spinach. There's something, there's something about cooking spinach that brings the sin nature out of it. So, woo, that was it. I'll eat anything, but if you invite me over, no liver or no cooked spinach, all right? That's my own journey. Let's look at the focus of both of these groups. And here's the problem. The focus of both of these groups was on each other. 
And that was wrong. Paul says, let not him that despise eats, despise him that eats, eats not, and let not him who eats not judges him who eats, for God hath received him. So the weaker Christian tends to despise, and this means to look with a condescending attitude against the stronger Christian. Man, that guy's eating meat. Does he even know where that meat came from? They were the more righteous ones in their own eyes. The stronger could boast about his freedom, and he he begins to judge the weak critically. You need to grow up. You need to come to a better understanding of the faith. We, can, we have liberty in Christ and, and all of that. So the strong believer most clearly evidences his maturity. Listen, when he voluntarily restricts his liberties, Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 8 all the way through chapter 10, for the sake of his own spiritual health, but more specifically, for the sake of the spiritual well-being and growth of his weaker brethren. You will restrict what you have the liberty to do because you do not want your liberty to become a stumbling block for someone else. Right? You may eat, you're free to eat whatever you want. But if you're going to lunch with somebody who's an Orthodox Jew, I would suggest you don't order bacon. Right? You don't want to offend somebody by what you're doing. Peter, you know, he, he had liberty. When he finally came to his terms, you know, with, with the liberty that he had in Christ, I'm sure he had, you know, enjoyed all kinds of foods. But then, then he started hanging around the, the, some of the Judaizers from Galatia. And, and Paul says he, he was to be blamed because he was, he was conveying the wrong teaching to them. And he was, he was changing his behavior in their sight. And he wouldn't eat with them or he was kind of going along with that. So what Paul's saying in verse 3 is, if you like meat, don't look down on the vegetarian. And again, it's not for health reasons. If you like vegetables, don't judge the meat eater. The guy whose liberty permits him to take that. But here's the interesting thing. The word in, in verse 3, receive, where it says, God hath received him, is the same word as is in verse 1 when it says the strong are to receive the weak. This is the very same word. And you know what this means? This word, proslambano in the Greek, it means to accept into your own intimate group. That's what it means, proslambano, to take them alongside you. If you haven't noticed, Christians can be very cliquish. Yeah, pretty quiet, right? It's true. Christians can be very cliquish, and they tend to fellowship with people who are most like them. And it's hard for them to proslambano, to take someone who is not like them, who's weak, different alongside them and bring them into their group. The Christian church should be no place for cliques because verse 3 says, God has received everyone alike. Praise God, right? Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. It doesn't matter what our place in life was. What kind of crazy ideas we had like eye, eye health, thinking I'm going to get some bad spiritual vibes from eating meat. God received me in Christ Jesus. And, and then it took time to get some of that stuff out of my life, that thinking, and to grow up spiritually. So critical judgment on non-essential issues is wrong. Verse 4. Who are you to judge another man's servant To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holden up or held up. And I love this. For God is able to make him stand. Now listen, this does not mean that you cannot disagree with other Christians on certain things. But it cannot be done with a harsh, critical, condemning spirit. Maybe filled with demeaning words or labels. 
And there are Christian debates that fall into that category where you can't do it out of a proud spirit at all. There is a place for theological debate. There is a place for debates concerning other matters, but they must be done in a Christian way. That's what what, what God is saying here. Because every Christian answers ultimately to God because we are his servant. He's our master. And you know the word servant there? It means household slaves. We're household slaves of the Lord Jesus for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, I am not your slave and you are not my slave. So you don't own me and I don't own you. I'm accountable to God and you're accountable to God. So whatever opinions we hold, we need to hold them lightly. We need to hold them in a gracious Christian way. We need to look out for our younger brothers who may not be as mature as we are in certain things. And we need to bring them alongside us. And we need to teach them. And we need to grow them up. That's what discipleship is all about. It's beautiful here. We stand strong in the faith by God's sustaining power. Which one of you thinks he stands? What does the Bible say? He's standing. Beware what? lest you fall. You never arrive. I never arrive. If I reach a point where I think, well, I've really be, I'm really mature. I've really, I'm really doing a great job. God can knock the feet out from you, the legs out from under you in a hurry. It's the strength of Christ. That's why Paul says, I can do all things by who? Christ who strengtheneth me so we stand strong in the faith by God's sustaining power and we live for his approval not for the approval of other men and really what this is saying to some extent God accepts both the strong in faith and the weak in faith as long as as long as neither one of those are sowing discord in the church so God wants the strong to stay strong to come alongside the weak he wants the weak to grow up begin to feed on, on, on the meat of God's word and not milk and begin to make good sound decisions to have an informed conscience formed by the word of God. Once this week to become strong. And I, I just have to say this. It was God's grace that made the strong strong. If you're a strong Christian and understand your liberties, and willing to even give up your liberties for the sake of a weaker brother or sister in Christ. It's God who made you strong. It's the Spirit of God and the power of His grace working in your life that made you that way. His grace also gives the weak time to mature in their faith. God doesn't come bashing hard down on somebody real quickly. I remember when I was a Christian growing up in a fundamentalist Baptist church. I mean, people were quick to let me know the limits. Oh, Christian, we don't do that. And I'm glad because I needed some discipline in my life. But some of the things they told me were flat out wrong. I could play cards. You know, not gamble and all that junk. You know? I mean, it came up with all kind of codes and dress codes and things that, that went beyond the Scripture. And that was the nature of many churches like that. So why are we then quick, if God accepts the weak, why are we then so quick to judge someone for not following our ways and fail to give them time to grow up spiritually? Why are we that way? Why don't we understand that spiritual maturity does not happen overnight? You need to work with people. You need to be willing to spend the time with them to grow them up. Parents, just think of your children. Just think of the time and the effort and the love and the grace that you pour into their life to bring them from babies all the way up to to mature, being mature adults who are able to stand on their own two feet, 
having taken everything that you've taught them, sorted through all that stuff, through their own word of God and their own convictions, maybe come to some different conclusions than you did. Because they will do that. It's part of, it's part of growth, growing up into to being an adult. Spiritual maturity does not happen overnight. And let me say this. We are in the constant process of maturing more and more. And Paul says that that will go on to the end of our days until he is able to present us perfect before Christ. Mature before Jesus Christ. That comes when we receive what? A new body. Complete transformation. Doesn't happen in this life. Well, in the meantime, what do we do? What do we do with people who differ? We have to act in love. One toward another. Romans 12.10 Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. In honor preferring one another. Acknowledging. Acknowledging them. Romans 13.8 Owe no man anything but to love one another. Owe, debt, owe no debt to no man but the debt to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. See, I mean, it's really hard. I say living the Christian life is hard on one hand, but it's also easy on another hand, right? Because God supplies all the grace. And because you could take all the rules and all the regulations, like Jesus said, you know, what is, they asked him, what's the greatest of the commandments? And what did Jesus say? He whittled 613 down to two, or, love, or three, love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now make it work. Think of all the situations in your life where you can make that work and must make that work. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, which we read, I'm not have time to go there. The weak believer was afraid to eat meat and drink wine that had been sacrificed to idols. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10, 23? All things are lawful for me. I'm not going to be... All things are not necessary. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify or build up. And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let, let no man seek his own, but every other man's wealth. Don't think primarily yourself. Put others first, build them up. And then he says this, whatever is sold in the meat market, eat. Even for sacrifice titles. Asking no question for conscience sake. And then he says this, for the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord's. Every creature that God gave for food on this earth is the Lord's. He gave it. That's exactly what he said. So you can have a meal out of God's creation, whether it's vegetables or whether it's chicken. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner, now here's the caveat, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. We, we had, I remember one time, Bless Marie, she, she made a great lasagna dinner, you know, salad and everything, and we invited this person to come and eat, and they looked down, and you could just tell they didn't, they didn't like it. Didn't even taste it. And then said, I don't like lasagna. Now, <laughs> what does the Bible say? Eat it, right? I mean, that happened more than once, but anyway. Then he says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 27. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake, but if anyone says to you, this meat was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. Then he repeats this, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. But conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other for why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? So we need to be careful of that. People shouldn't bind your conscience with anything, and you shouldn't bind their conscience with your convictions. But again, you won't do anything that's going to cause someone with a weaker conscience to stumble. So you, would, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't eat something in that particular context that would be an offense to them. So just, you know, really just be mindful of these basic things. 
Enjoy your liberty in Jesus Christ. But don't make your liberty an occasion for the flesh to fulfill its lust thereof. Enjoy your liberty, but don't let your liberty become a stumbling block for another Christian. Enjoy the things that God has given to you. And especially the fellowship that we have with one another in Jesus Christ. That's precious. We have to guard that. And you might have to, to, to broaden your fellowship and bring people into your little, little smaller group that maybe feel excluded and you don't even know they feel excluded. Let love abound, is what the Bible says, more and more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the simplicity of it at times and the truth of it, clarity of it. Help us, Lord, to be strong in faith, not weak in faith, but help us to be mindful of those whose, whose faith is weak and they need to grow up. Maybe they're not even saved, people who come in. Maybe, maybe someone's here who's not saved doesn't even really know what I'm talking about. Help us, Lord, to begin with them where they need to begin, with the simple gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. And he died so that we might live, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. All the things of this world are going to perish. Everything in it, all of our possessions, Lord, we know we're going to perish. But we have an eternal soul. And one day the world and everything that's on it is going to be burnt up. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein will dwell righteousness. Father, I'm thankful that all those in Christ will be part of that. And I pray for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their, their Savior that they might realize the love of God in Christ and recognize that they're a sinner and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sin and receive him as their personal Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.